Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, speed is life at the Air Force for hardware and software. Part of the challenge, Francis, is that we can't treat software like it's one big monolith because there's so many different kinds of software. A preview of next steps to jumpstart data decision-making. This is really an area where it's incumbent on OMB and the White House to take a strong leadership role and move this forward fast. And the Defense Department has gotten good at continuing resolutions. Certainly, I think some of the practices that DOD uses, other agencies could use. It's Thursday, September 16th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at four o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department is getting new travel management software. The department will spend $374 million to get the system from Concur Technologies. The system will replace the legacy defense travel systems software. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission says it's ahead of the game on its transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract. NRC Chief Information Officer David Nelson tells FedScoop his agency's transition is 98.9% complete. Nelson says the agency's awarded all the task orders it intends to for EIS. The administrator of the General Services Administration has a new senior advisor. Waldo Jaquith is joining Robin Carnahan's team at GSA. Jaquith's a veteran of GSA's 18F, the White House's Open Data Working Group, and the U.S. Digital Service. You can read more about those stories and all of today's headlines at fedscoop.com. Cyber Week is coming next week, presented by CyberScoop. It's next Monday through Friday. It's a week-long cyber festival with hundreds of events, lots of top leaders from technology, education, and government, both digitally and in person. You can learn more and sign up for it at cyberweek.us. The chief software officer of the Air Force, Nicholas Sheon, is leaving government. He posted why on LinkedIn recently, including writing this, one of the main reasons for my decision was the failure of OSD and the joint staff to deliver on their own alleged top priority, JADC2. They couldn't walk the walk. Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, U.S. Air Force retired, is dean of the Mitchell Institute of Aerospace Power Studies. Dave, welcome. It's good to see you again. I'm not going to ask you to talk about Nick and his motivation, but I imagine that the things that he wrote in that LinkedIn post were probably not much of a surprise to you, were they, General? Welcome. Well, first, it's uh, great to talk to you on this uh, topic, uh, Francis. And uh, unfortunately, you're correct. Um, None of the topics that he talked about were really uh, a surprise. Um, And there's a lot that the Department of Defense needs to move out on um, with respect to um, software uh, development uh, in a variety of different uh, uh, venues. Uh, and uh, I, we, we here at Mitchell Institute are concerned about this so much so um, we did a publication here recently entitled Speed is Life, Accelerating the Air Force's Ability to Adapt and Win. Now, in the, in the fighter business, um, that old adage, speed is life, uh, is something that uh, fighter pilots talked about all the time. But it's no longer just about flying. It's about rapidly evolving mission tools to fight and win. Uh, and that means uh, software. We'll link to this piece at uh, fedscoop.com, Dave, so folks can see it. But you make six key points in this piece, you and your colleague, Heather Penny, 
Um, and some of these are exactly what Nick wrote or paraphrasing what Nick wrote in his post. Uh, the first one, networks and software essential to success in modern warfare. They must adapt rapidly and reconfigure to provide a combat advantage. The second one, though, is, is rather ominous sounding. Air Force networks are rigid and software development paradigms take too long to be operationally effective. That's exactly contrary to what all of the services, to be fair, say they need and what all of the uniform leaders say they need in a modern warfighting environment, Dave, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. And a part of the challenge, Francis, is that we can't treat software like it's one big monolith because there are so many different kinds of software from business enterprise software, uh, think Microsoft Office in that regard, um, to aircraft operational flight program or OFPs software. And, and that's the stuff that controls Air Force a uh, aircraft avionics. And it also enables cockpit integration with external weapons. Uh, and, and then there's network configuration software and so on and so forth. And each one needs to be managed and funded differently. But fundamentally, there are some... Uh, uh, some major barriers uh, to get to what Nick is talking about and many of us recognize, uh, and that's achieving the speed and adaptation of, of software. Uh, and, and some of those, I, I like to, to boil those barriers down into three major elements. There's money, there's bureaucracy, and then there's Manning. And I can speak a little more detail about each of the three if you'd like. Yeah, and I'd like you to start with the Manning piece of it because one of the things that he pointed out was that you shouldn't put a lieutenant colonel in charge of a software program, and that seems to make a lot of sense. I can understand why the program management culture in the department does things that way, but it strikes me that we need software technologists running those programs and not necessarily somebody in uniform if they don't have that kind of expertise you wouldn't send me you wouldn't put me in the cockpit of an airplane despite the things that i know about how the department functions unfortunately and this is habit it's sort of the law the law of large organizations but the department of defense mans and manages software development like it does hardware um and instead what we need to do is uh you know, acquire smart and trained individuals uh, to adapt software at the point of need. Um, and, and that's why one of our recommendations in our report is to develop uh, what are known as joint integration control officers and embed them at operation, all operational levels, but especially at the unit level. Now, that's, that's a different paradigm. Um, well, let me just expand on that a bit more because Success in tomorrow's conflicts is largely going to depend on how warfighters are able to harness and adapt everything from, you know, mission systems on board aircraft, ships and tanks and vehicles to sensor packages, networks and decision aids. And to be able to prevail in dynamic battle space, those warfighters have to be able to reprogram and reconfigure their weapon systems. Uh, and that's what these joint integration control officers would do. Um, yet the services continue to develop and update and manage software uh, in a very highly centralized and stovepipe fashion. And that, frankly, simply takes too long uh, and is not going to be effective in this new world. 
What's the money problem and how do we fix that problem, Dave? Well, the money problem is one that you understand very well. It's difficult to convey to the average citizen, but let me try. Right now, in the defense budgeting system, what we call the color of money or the different appropriation categories, these are typically major areas like procurement, research and development, operations and maintenance, simply don't fit or are not appropriate nor fast enough to facilitate software development and evolution. And, and so in the Department of Defense, money and budget is still um, hardware oriented and it can take years uh, to mature where software can go from zero to 10 in weeks or months. At the risk of giving short shrift to your third point, Dave, we're starting to run out of time and we could probably do the entire segment on what's needed to change the bureaucracy at the Pentagon. In the minute or so we have left, I got to ask you about where you were yesterday. Uh, you were, we were going to record with you yesterday and you said, no, I'm a little busy. You were in Florida yesterday. Tell me what you were doing. Yeah, I was down at uh, Cape Canaveral um, watching uh, the Falcon X uh, launch of uh, Inspiration 4, which is the first all-civilian crew. Uh, mission commander is Jared Isaacman uh, and three of his compatriots uh, went up into orbit, and they're there today. First time an all-civilian crew has launched, and they're in an orbit higher than the Hubble telescope higher than the International Space Station, and they're making history. What was your takeaway from seeing it, and what are the potential implications for the national defense community in the United States, Dave? Well, space launches are already, always impressive, and it was just a magnificent evening. You know, there were just a, a few little puffy clouds in the sky, and it's enormously impressive uh, to see a launch um, as, the, as, as the light and sound show or is, is unbeatable. But let me give you the quick implication. This was done by a commercial company. These were civilians. Um, and quite frankly, the trajectory that um, commercial space is on uh, is very, very impressive. Uh, and uh, I'm, gonna I'm gonna put a positive spin on this and suggest that the Department of Defense do everything they can to capitalize on the innovation that exists in the commercial sector. Because quite frankly, they're going a lot faster than the old institutions uh, that need to adapt to modern philosophy. Fits back to the beginning of our conversation where you said speed is life. General Dave Deptula, great to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Have a great aerospace power kind of day. And that's the best sign-off in the history of the Daily Scoop podcast so far. You can read more about the software status at the Air Force at fedscoop.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, the Defense Department's getting good at continuing resolutions. Some lessons your agency could learn when the next one comes. That's on the way. The Daily Scoop podcast lineup is available ahead of time on Twitter every day. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod on Twitter. The federal government's officially four years into its effort to use data to make better decisions. But there are two ways the administration could turbocharge the evidence movement in government. According to Nick Hart, he's president of the Data Foundation. He was leader of the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking, and he's writing about evidence 
on his blog. Nick, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program today. I want to start with something that you write here. What's possible today, you ask rhetorically, that wasn't four years ago? Answer that rhetorical question for me, Nick. Welcome. Uh, well, Francis, great to be here uh, with you. And it's important to note that a, a lot has happened in the last four years, not just in society, but also because of uh, the great work that happened from a group called the U.S. Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking. They put out their final recommendations back in September of 2017, and they were widely uh, heralded in a bipartisan fashion that led to a new law uh, that we call the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act. So when you take all of those things together, the really salient message out of this commission, the new legal authorities, there is just an incredible amount that can happen today that historically has not. For example, we have new leaders across government that are focused intentionally on using data, organizing information, setting up governance processes for data that help us ensure that we're answering questions that are, are important for operations, but also deploying evidence-based policymaking. So I'm talking about having chief data officers in federal agencies. I'm talking about evaluation officials and officers that are now scattered around government and helping us understand more about what data is telling uh, for us to make important decisions and to better guide policymaking across the board. Uh, beyond that, the research community has new capabilities. Uh, there's a new portal that allows researchers to have better insights as to what data government actually has so they can figure out how to access it or whether they can access it to conduct research that's relevant for decision making. So the, the list goes on and on. There is an incredible amount uh, that's happening. Uh, and this is a good success story, not just about the commission, but about government itself. You write in this uh, blog post, while real progress is being made, there are other areas ripe for attention from leaders at the White House where implementation of the Evidence Act has lagged. The first one you write about is presumption of accessibility regulation. What's that mean? Yeah, it's, it's a fairly clunky term, admittedly, but this is a provision that was included in the Evidence Act. It was a, a bipartisan law. Uh, and this provision was intended to change the way that we think about data sharing in government. So traditionally, uh, there are obstacles to sharing information. Some of these are important. Having a little bit of friction and healthy dialogue about whether and how to share data is important in society to ensure we get it right. But the burden shouldn't be on uh, the researchers or those who are actively allowed or uh, uh, should be able to share data to, to prove that they can. So this presumption of accessibility was a way of saying in federal law that there is an expectation we're sharing data unless there's something that actually and actively prohibits it. So it changes the default. The expectation now is that government should be sharing data when it can. How far are we from that? What are the big obstacles to overcoming that gap, Nick? Well, the, the biggest obstacle, frankly, for using that provision of law is that the White House's Office of Management and Budget needs to issue a regulation for public comment uh, and then actually promulgate it so that we can we can actively use that provision. Uh, there are lots of holdups and reasons that might be delayed, uh, but this has been now two years since the Evidence Act became law, two years since this could have been activated. And there are a lot of important decisions that are, are now challenged because we're not using this authority, including responding to the pandemic. So uh, this is really an area where it's incumbent on OMB and the White House to take a strong leadership role and move this forward fast. The second item that you write about is guidance on new open data requirements, and it looks like this one's an OMB issue as well. Well, full disclosure, I used to work at OMB uh, earlier in my career, and 
Uh, I, I don't I don't intend to blame OMB for for stalling some of these provisions, but OMB has a really key leadership role. And this um, part of the Evidence Act that was focused on open data was intended to provide greater transparency and accountability for the American people. One of the great stalling points now is that agencies are waiting for guidance from OMB on how to actually implement it so they can do it in a consistent way. So this idea of having a data inventory, so the American people know what data government even has, that requires OMB to make some broad statements about how to do that consistently. So uh, agencies like the Department of Commerce and Department of Defense that are communicating with the American people are doing it in a common way. So everybody doesn't have to try to understand every single individual agency's approach. Um, there, there's a lot more that's necessary for the guidance around open data from OMB, including application of data standards and uh, things like tiered access, which means how we understand the sensitivity of different kinds of data, what should be released, what might be confidential or restricted. Um, that all requires, again, clear guidance from the White House. If you don't want to pick on your former colleagues at OMB, I might for a moment, Nick. We have been waiting for a program inventory all across the federal government for at least the 15 years that I've been following the federal government. Senator Tom Coburn asked for that couple decades ago. We haven't gotten that yet. What makes you optimistic that we can get a data inventory to comply with this law when we can't get the program inventory to comply with that law? Well, as you know, one of the challenges with producing a program inventory is defining what a program is. Uh, I think one of the important distinctions in this context around a data inventory is that we have fairly good definitions about what data are, what data is. And um, to the extent that we already have existing approval processes that can be collated together to produce inventories, agencies should be in a fairly good place to make rapid progress on this once the guidance is issued. Uh, as for the program inventory status, you know, I, I don't have the latest there. I, I do know that has been a decades long uh, discussion and uh, hopefully we'll see some good progress there as well, including because once the open data inventories and some other recent uh, data-related laws are are uh, fully implemented, uh, they'll lead to success in the program inventories as well. Um, very quick final thought, Nick. We're almost out of time. You write, the Evidence Act was a starting point, but there's still yet more work underway to implement the Evidence Commission's recommendations. What is that work? Well, one of the headline recommendations out of the commission was to establish something called a National Secure Data Service, uh, basically a data linkage hub. And there's an active uh, piece of legislation on the Hill. It's already passed the House. It's pending in the Senate called the NSDS Act that would establish just that at the National Science Foundation. Uh, so this is an area where we know we need to improve government's broad infrastructure to use data. And that's really the intent here with the NSDS Act. So hopefully we'll see some good progress there as well. Nick Hart of the Data Foundation, thanks very much for joining me as always. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to Nick's blog post at fedscoop.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on tomorrow's program. The Defense Innovation Unit's latest tool in great power competition is money. The director of DIU, Mike Brown, will tell you how he'll use it on Friday's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts at 4 p.m. Friday on fedscoop.com and everywhere else you get your shows. The federal government's 14 days away from the end of the fiscal year. Both chambers and both parties on Capitol Hill are avoiding talking about a shutdown, but it's almost a lock that fiscal 2022 will start with at least one continuing resolution. The Defense Department is ready. Elizabeth Fields, Director of Defense Capabilities and Management at the Government Accountability Office. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. You write in this work 
the Defense Department has practices in place to minimize the effects of continuing resolutions. What are those practices in place, Elizabeth? Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, there are, are many things that DOD officials do to manage uh, for the eventuality of a continuing resolution. And, and I should note that the federal government has operated under one or more CR in all but three of the last 45 fiscal years. So this is really business as usual for the Department of Defense. Uh, the department can do a number of things. For example, uh, they can modify contract starts so that they plan for a contract, particularly a service contract, to begin in the second quarter of a fiscal year rather than the first uh, to allow for that eventuality of a continuing resolution. Another would be to request an anomaly from, from Congress. That is an exception that Congress approves uh, to a continuing resolution to allow for some spending. Uh, for example, uh, the Department of Defense and the Air Force in particular got authority from Congress uh, to spend money on military housing in Puerto Rico and, and uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands after Hurricane Maria ravaged that housing. Normally, they wouldn't be allowed to do that under a CR, but they got that special exemption. You write, DOD civilian hiring generally slowed during CRs. Do you have data that indicates that that's related to the CR or is it coincidental? Are there other factors potentially at play too? Or is it a direct cause and effect because of the continuing resolution? We looked at this from a number of different angles and we did our best to get data and there weren't great data on this, I, I have to be honest. Um, but, but what we did see is that civilian hiring is somewhat slower during a CR than not. Uh, on average, the department is hiring about 200 people per day during a CR uh, versus 250 people per day. But department officials that we spoke with also identified a number of other factors that can uh, delay hiring or cause fluctuations during the year in civilian hiring. Uh, for example, the Army Medical Command told us that their turnover rate is about 10%. And it tends to be heavier in the summer because they employ a large amount of military spouses who have to relocate in the summer months when service members have their PCS orders. So it's a little bit of both. You noted at the beginning of our conversation and you write at the beginning of this work, for 11 of the past 12 fiscal years, DOD's operated under a CR for some part of the fiscal year. Is the process and procedure that they use each year the same now? Do they have basically have a book on this and they just go to the book when it appears that that's going to be happening again? They do. Uh, you know, even if they haven't yet seen signs that a CR is going to happen, they assume it will. They will, for example, each of the military services will develop a spending plan, uh, one under a 30-day CR scenario, another on uh, 60 days, a 90 day, and then they have those plans in place so that when a CR occurs, if it occurs, which in all likelihood it will, uh, they allocate their funding that they get under the CR according to whichever spend plan is most relevant for that CR. I know this work relates specifically to the Defense Department, but are there practices and procedures the department uses that other agencies could consider adopting if they don't have the same kind of repetition in prepping for a CR that the Defense Department does, Elizabeth? 
So interestingly enough, GAO right now has a review ongoing about the effects of CRs on non-DOD agencies, uh, and it will be interesting to see what they find. Certainly, I think some of the practices that DOD uses, other agencies could use, and it may very well be that they are already using those practices. I think one interesting question is whether DOD has the ability to withstand the effects of a CR better than some smaller agencies just because of its overall size uh, and ability to adapt in that way. I know that GAO as a mid-sized agency certainly feels the effects of CRs. We certainly use many of these same practices, but that doesn't mean that this is an ideal way to operate. Uh, it is certainly far from efficient. Yeah, you write in this work and, and DOD officials have said on the Hill directly to the members of Congress on many occasions, the repetition and incremental planning isn't an effective or efficient way to operate is the way that you write it. Is that the only thing that gets the department out of this issue is uh, getting away from CRs, if that's possible? That's a tricky question because, again, as I mentioned, it's happened in, in all but three of the last 45 fiscal years. I think it would be wonderful if Congress could get back to a system of actually uh, approving regular appropriations for all federal agencies at the beginning of the fiscal year as it, as it is supposed to do. Um, that said, I think that some of the effects of CRs that DOD officials have reported to Congress have not necessarily uh, come to be, uh, in part because those reports assume a full year CR, and that has never happened for defense appropriations. So I, I think perhaps in part because of this report that we've issued, congressional uh, appropriators and authorizers who are focused on defense budget issues in particular are going to want to hear uh, more uh, accurate, more reliable information from the military services about what they really anticipate the effects of a CR to be, you know, take a more realistic scenario than a full year CR, for example, and help them understand what that picture looks like. Elizabeth Field, thank you very much as always. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to Elizabeth's work at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and many more places. The leader of the Defense Innovation Unit, Mike Brown, is on the show tomorrow. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening.